starting a database company is not easy. And that's because a new database company needs to solve numerous problems in order to succeed. There are already lots of existing database companies, so a new company needs to find a way to strongly differentiate itself. Databases are core infrastructure, so a new database company must earn trust with its customers. A database is a complicated distributed system, so a database company must have strong engineering to get its product to market. Citus Data was founded in 2011. Around that time, companies were looking for solutions to both their online transactional workloads and their large-scale offline analytics workloads. Citus Data builds its company around Postgres, a popular database that has been around since 1996. Products from Citus Data include a Postgres scalability extension, as well as a cloud-hosted offering for spinning up Postgres instances. Citus Data was successfully acquired by Microsoft earlier this year, which was a huge success for the company. In today's episode, Umer Chabukchu joins the show to talk about the story of Citus Data, from its early days to its eventual acquisition. Umer describes the landscape of data systems in 2011 when the company started and explains how that evolved to the current ecosystem. Umer also talks about how to make an acquisition successful and gives some perspective on the future of data platforms. If you're looking for all 1,000 of our old episodes, check out the Software Daily app for iOS. It includes all our old episodes, including related links and greatest hits and topics, You can sort the episodes, you can make playlists, you can find all the episodes related to particular businesses or particular open source projects or infrastructure software or cloud computing or various influencers in the software engineering world. And if you want to become a paid subscriber, you can get ad-free episodes by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. Altology is the company that has been helping us develop some of the software for Software Daily. Although all of that is open source in the Software Engineering Daily GitHub repo. And if you're looking for a company to help you with mobile or web development, I recommend checking out Altology. They've really done a great job, and we're still working with them. We will have the Android version app of, the, of our app out soon, and keep your eyes open for that. With that, let's get on to today's show. Umer Chabukchu, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey Jeff, great to be here. You founded Citus Data in 2011 with your two co-founders. Describe the relational database market back then. So that's been a very different uh, picture than or what it is today. So the, well, one part of it that was similar is there are two open source databases on the relational side uh, that uh, really it could move the needle. Uh, one is, you know, uh, Postgres and the other is MySQL. And that's kind of remained uh, largely the case on the relational side, you know, uh, still today. And now there's, of course, MariaDB as kind of a derivative of, of MySQL. So that side of it was the relational house. And of course, you had the big, you know, the traditional players, uh, Oracle being the largest of them, uh, as well as, you know, Microsoft with SQL Server, IBM at DB2, and a bunch of kind of traditional 
behemoths, if you will. That covered, I would say, 90 plus percent, almost 95 plus percent, actually, of the entire database market about a decade ago. It was all relational. You know, much of it, uh, from a dollar's perspective, obviously, was kind of closed source and commercial. And there was very little by way of, you know, open source, no SQL databases. That was actually the beginning of those movements around 2010, 11, 9. Actually, one of my co-founders, Özgün, uh, was one of the earlier people, you know, at Amazon who started kind of playing with Hadoop in its kind of early beta days, not even uh, actually prior to beta, even alpha days. And, uh, you know, we could see and actually kind of actively saw uh, how a lot of the kind of NoSQL as a uh, movement was, was forming. And that was kind of all the rage, if you will. In fact, when we started Citus, people told us, hey, why are you, you know, doing this on SQL? SQL doesn't scale. You know, you should do NoSQL. Uh, in fact, you should do Cassandra. You know, that was the, uh, the zeitgeist when we founded Citus. What was the original go-to-market strategy for Citus Data? Original one, well, I'll, was to actually first build the database <laughs> and then put it on a uh, kind of, it was a closed source version of Postgres, uh, which, you know, in different forms actually had been tackled before. Uh, you had, you know, forks of Postgres, uh, you know, prior to Citus in kind of 2005 to 2010 era uh, with a lot of the, what's called MPPs, the Massive Palette Processing Databases, like Greenplum, like Aster Data, you know, uh, Netiza, you know, you have a lot of the, you know, what's Redshift now, which used to be Paraxel, kind of all of those things, you know, had been in the market as, you know, forks of Postgres from kind of a lot of earlier versions. And at Citus, we said, actually, we have a different take on this problem. You know, we're not going to start from, uh, you know, scratch because, you know, we see a lot of opportunity, you know, in terms of how quickly the data landscape is evolving, you know, how the scale piece is still missing and we need to fill that in. But if you were to build it from scratch, that's just going to be overkill. Uh, and that's kind of the path that kind of the Hadoop movement and others kind of took. So that part of it to us was clear. We're not going to start from scratch. We're going to build this on one of an existing stack, whether MySQL or Postgres. We had a long debate, super happy that we landed on Postgres you know, for a lot of good reasons. Because and when we started those discussions, by the way, MySQL wasn't yet part of Oracle. So it was, you know, Sun acquired it and then kind of Oracle eventually, but that wasn't kind of a given either. So that was uh, one part of the equation. We said, okay, we're going to do this on top of Postgres from a business model. We're going to adopt something that's, you know, closer to what the kind of earlier folks of Postgres did, but we are going to build it in a way that's much more kind of closer to how Postgres does it. You know, instead of kind of forking in these broad strokes, we're actually going to build our code in a way that really kind of extends Postgres. But we still packaged it as a different binary, which you had to download. It was still closed sourced when we first kind of began our journey. And that's changed, of course, quite a lot since, you know, then till now. I'd like to the time in context, both then and now. So historically, the world of databases, it's been easier to model all of our data relationally in, in earlier times when we just had things like user accounts and just simpler forms of data. But the explosion of applications and the cloud, and the complexity of our infrastructure, it's led to things like complicated JSON objects. We have long and big log messages that we might be storing. How has the evolution of the structure and the volume of data changed our requirements for databases? 
That's a very good question. And it's actually, it's not a new question either. Like when you think about databases going kind of all the way back to, you know, Postgres's origins, you know, back in kind of in 95, Postgres, even prior to that, Postgres started life as a kind of a non-relational database, uh, kind of as an, and then it added the SQL APIs in 95 and became PostgreSQL. So that question of, you know, how much structure to impose and how to kind of tackle relational versus non-relational has been on, you know, for a long time. I think part of it is we forgot that with kind of, that it happened in the 80s and the 90s and then kind of now we revisiting it in a much kind of grander fashion today. And to that effect, a lot of these, uh, let's say, uh, less structured data types have been kind of on the periphery of the relational domain, you know, for instance, XML, right, or kind of different data sources or data types have been kind of plugged in over time into the different relational databases, but not kind of as second-class citizens, maybe even third-class citizens. And the dominant model has always kind of been, you know, uh, relations and the, the relational paradigm around how, how that gets processed. Now, I think a lot of the reason that JSON kind of came to rise is, one, the scalability of the relational database was very challenged. Uh, so, you know, you the paradigm was you had to build a bigger box and a bigger box and a bigger box as your data grew. And that kind of was okay if you were processing really valuable data, like, you know, transactions in your kind of credit card processing system, you could afford that. Uh, but as you try, started collecting data around the periphery, then in kind of much larger volumes, that model didn't scale. And when people talk about scalability, I think one obvious part is just the strict performance uh, and how much volume of data there is. But I think the even more important part of it is the cost and the, both the dollar cost of being able to scale and the engineering cost and complexity of being able to scale. And, you know, relational didn't do well there, right? So, you, you know, you had the kind of existing paradigm, which is, you know, I'm going to charge you, you know, $40,000, $50,000 per core, kind of that's kind of list prices that you're talking about from kind of the large vendors back then and kind of, you know, in, in many ways, you know, still are. And then, of course, I'm going to give you huge discounts. But when you think Sorry, about per, it... per core per year or per month? <laughs> it's, it's outrageous, isn't it? It is per core perpetual is the typical model. Oh, perpetual. So let's say, say if I'm, say, you know, a vendor like Oracle and I've got, you know, one core of, and you've got different, you know, options you could add into your database. You've got a standard version, enterprise version, a bunch of kind of data protection and other features. But broad strokes, say I'm charging you 40000 you know, like per core on, and then I'm charging you about, you know, a baseline of 20% plus uh, of that per year on maintenance, right? And then, of course, there's models, say, where you can do it kind of on a Hey, can I get it for a three-year term? It doesn't always have to be perpetual. Uh, you know, can I do it for? But typically, you would think about let's say like as five years. And if you're looking at forty thousand, if you're looking at another, you know, twenty percent per year on top across four, five years, you're talking about like tens of thousands per core. Again, these are list prices and they're public. You can find them, uh, you know, uh, like they're kind of like published transparently. And then you would get a large discount. It could be 60%, 70%, 80%. But still, like you're in thousands, even in your laptop today, you know, you've got a bunch of cores running. If you wanted to do anything meaningful, you know, you'd very quickly jump into millions. And that structure, again, by the way, you know, the, the database that's running underneath that is very powerful. It does a lot of, you know, powerful and useful things, not just for the 
you know, development of the application, but the enterprise integrations, the governance, there's a ton of things it does. However, as you can, you know, clearly see, it just doesn't, you know, scale. And if I were to, you know, throw 128 cores at this, 256 cores, not only does the cost doesn't scale the, you know, equipment, the, the entire thing becomes very fragile, right? So my database, my kind of crown jewel is running on this, you know, huge machine, and I have very little kind of control over it. And if it's, you know, how... If it's down, my entire business is down and taking backups and, and kind of maintaining it from a DevOps perspective is, is, you know, is nightmarish. So that was the kind of the operational side of it and the, the cost side of it. I think what's really happened over the last 10 years, I'd like to think of like the cost or the value, dollar value per byte of data, if there is such a metric, really dropped, right? So like in, when I previously a record in a database could be a credit card transaction or a kind of phone call billing that's used for billing, the dollar value of those bits and bytes are relatively high, right? And I can afford to use, you know, perhaps kind of one of those kind of older model databases in it. But if I am collecting engine telemetry data, you know, 95% of which is kind of the same always throughout, and I'm looking for kind of small anomalies, like the data by itself, every byte of data that I'm storing is much, much less valuable, right, from a dollar perspective. So I need a different model to be able to process that. And that's really what drove the, all of the kind of the Hadoop movement, the NoSQL movement was, hey, you know what, I'm going to give you, you know, free software. It's going to be open source. It's going to be kind of free as in free beer. You can use as much of it you like. And I'm going to give this own kind of commodity hardware off the shelf, as opposed to these specialized appliances you could go buy from Dell or from, you know, HP or whomever you like, and kind of essentially off the shelf, free hardware, free software, I'm going to solve this problem for you. I think that was the kind of fundamental premise, which got a lot of people, uh, you know, excited for good reason. But I think it was also a bit maybe, you know, too ambitious from, a, you know, like, so in, in, in a sense, kind of overpromised and underdelivered when you look at that entire life cycle. You mean Hadoop, uh, Hadoop uh, overpromised and underdelivered. For example, exactly. Because like I've, the pain point is clear. You've got the kind of incumbents, they're very expensive and they don't scale. That's a good problem to attack. But if the solution is I'm going to build what's been built over the last 20, 30 years with a lot of, you know, effort and kind of engineering kind of fundamentals. And if I try to build that from scratch, like in a matter of a few years, and by from scratch, I mean all the way from the file system, right? Like I'm not even using, you know, like the earlier paradigms, starting with HDFS and everything. It's got a very useful set of applications, which kind of Google championed and, you know, kind of to, to good effect, but it's not a database, right? So if, I, so if I treat that as a database building exercise from scratch over the course of like 10 plus years, I think it really, really underdelivered because it wasn't designed kind of like to do so. Right, and I think the way in which the Hadoop systems perhaps underdelivered could be described in the distinction between the the early OLAP versus OLTP workloads, the early days of of Hadoop. You would have these Hadoop jobs that would run on a nightly basis, and you would wake up to an email that says, hey, your nightly Hadoop job ran and we have the like customer purchasing amounts for yesterday's transactions summarized and sent to your inbox. And that's great, but it's not a paradigm that you can build real-time applications in. 
That's very correct. I think the, like, when you think about Todo, for example, it does a lot of things that are very useful, right? So it does, in fact, have a very low cost of storage. You know, you could, you know, dump your data there. Uh, you know, it does give you a lot of parallel compute, which you can use to kind of call things over, but uh, in a kind of very offline fashion, to your point, right? So I could run it kind of overnight. I could, you know, uh, like manage the data that I have or things that are easily parallelizable. I can run across them if you, I mean, to, you know, maybe give a very kind of oversimplified example, but like the way Google's using it is to kind of build inverted indexes of the kind of of the web that's and kind of other things as well. But if you think at the use case there, let's say I've got a file, right? And I've got a bunch of text written uh, on it. And if I want to count uh, the number of uh, occurrences of the letter A or something, right? So I can take uh, that file and I could easily parse it out. I could say, hey, machine number one, take the first row of this file. Machine number two, take the second row. I can, and then, hey, each machine, tell me how many A's you encountered, right? And then you give that to me. I'm going to add it up, give it back, you know, to the user. So it's a, you know, it's a parallel. That's my map and reduce, you know, so I'm basically, it's a very effective way to kind of run parallel things across, you know, data sets. But what I've described isn't really a database per se, right? Like it's, uh, you know, when I think about a database, it goes all the way from, there's an OLAP side, there's OLTP side, there is the, you know, the performance and latency, but there's also the data, you know, the governance, the security around it, the roles, access controls, you know, everything that a DBMS does is kind of, you know, not included in that package just yet, which basically is the journey that went on. So from kind of building, okay, this is the first use case, or then kind of people want to use this as a database. So let me build those one at a time. But if you kind of start on that path, then you're basically building a new database from scratch. And I think putting too much, too broad of a context into something that's specialized and useful, but treating it as kind of too broadly. And I think that's, you know, largely what happened with with, with Todo. You started Citus Data with Oskan and Sumed. How did you meet them? We were all actually together at uh, grad school uh, at Stanford. So this was, uh, you know, like earlier part of, I guess, 2000s, 2000, you know, one, two through 2004. But before then, I knew Özgen uh, all the way from high school, actually. So we went to a boarding school back in Istanbul in Turkey. And uh, we basically... It's been almost 30 years, actually, since, you know, I uh, met Özgün. And, but so we grew up together, but then, you know, we actually at Stanford is when we really intersected. And Sumit was also in the CS program at, uh, at Stanford, you know, together with Özgün. And then afterwards, both Özgün and Sumit actually went to Amazon. And then kind of a lot of the foundations of, okay, how, uh, what we're seeing in the market, kind of those observations came to being. And then when we reunited, uh, we founded Citus. What was the division of labor between you three for Citus Data when you got started? So it's uh, practically between the three of us, I took things. Uh, so Özgün and uh, Sumit drove the technical side of things, and I took everything that's practically, you know, like non-engineering, as would be the case in a kind of an early startup. And that included uh, customer-facing functions. It included keeping kind of like the office uh, running, whether talking with investors and really uh, kind of uh, looking at the go-to-market side of things, right? But of course, back then, we didn't think of it as a go-to-market. We thought of it as engineering and non-engineering. And of course, so as kind of over time uh, evolved, uh, you know, as you took more of a 
between the engineering kind of functions, more of a, the overall, uh, like the architect and the kind of the CTO of the company. And Sumit took more of the kind of a VP engineering type of role. And then I uh, took on things around both product uh, management as well as sales and marketing and, and everything else. You mentioned that the initial go-to-market strategy for Citus was eventually modified to focus on Postgres extensions. And I've spoken with Oskan about Postgres extensions at length, so we don't need to go into, into too much detail. But from a business strategy standpoint, why were the Postgres extensions a useful abstraction to focus your business around? So it's actually, you know, extensions as a kind of means to getting that. But yes, the way we've thought, we've evolved, you know, several times kind of outside us from when we first built it. Like I said, it was first kind of a modern version of a kind of a scalable Postgres that used these smaller kind of blocks of data underneath uh, which later we've referred to as shards, but they are not, you know, they're much more kind of granular than that. And then we said, okay, this is how it actually can scale. Took some powerful ideas from that block-based architecture of GFS and applied it to databases and a bunch of things happening kind of under the cover. We said we could sell this uh, as a closed source product, but in a way that's uh, easy to consume. You could download it, you could use it for free. We always had the, you know, developer uh, interest kind of at the, the core of it. So we had, uh, you know, a lot of debates, but then always converged on, okay, let's not put, uh, you know, the usage of the product behind the registration wall. So any developer should be able to go to the website, click a button and start using the product without talking to us. And if they wanted to, we can talk and kind of understand what they're doing. So that has always been our approach. And then, you know, as now as things evolved, we realized, A, from a workload perspective, that focusing only on analytics, you know, was a very limiting factor. And then B, it was also very crowded. You know, uh, to your point, you know, Hadoop, again, this is 2012, 13, 14, the heyday of the, you know, the Hadoop movement. And then on the other side, you have the kind of like the NoSQLs with, you know, uh, Cassandra and Mongo and other things. But really, as it relates to, you know, uh, scalable workloads, uh, more of the kind of like that Cassandra workloads uh, happening. And we said, okay, what are our kind of core strengths? And one of the things we've and no is, you know, Postgres is very versatile and it can actually handle both OLAP and OLTP workloads in a single machine. None of them, you know, you can't say, oh, it's the, the perfect, the most optimized OLAP database or the most optimized OLTP database, but it does both and it does them pretty darn good. And so we said, okay, that's actually our, one of our fundamental advantages. Let's build on that. Let's kind of enable those workloads. And in fact, before we could do that, several of our customers did. You know, like they've asked us if you, you know, rewinding the Citus product back, you know, many years, we actually, in our first, very first version, you could only do batch writes into the database. So, you know, like bulk copy. And, you know, one of our customers asked us, hey, like, I want to do real-time updates, inserts against this data. You know, can I do it? We said, sorry, you can't. You have to do batch. And they said, like, uh, why can't I? Why can't Postgres do this? She said, well, it can. You know, isn't Citus Postgres? It is. So why can't I do it? Actually, you can. Here's how you do it. You know, like we kind of showed what's happening in the kind of under the hood, and they instrumented it themselves. And then this happened twice. And the third time, you're kind of embarrassed. You know, like this should actually be in product. You know, people need this. So that was kind of one of the first 
again, before we went to open source, so kind of what's happening like in the background of, okay, how, what type of workloads do we tackle through using you know, Citus? And as we built those things, we relied heavily on the extensibility of Postgres. So, you know, if you're tackling a transactional workload, something that's much more real-time than batch, then the amount of overhead that you want to introduce to the, you know, planning the query planning and execution cycles are much much smaller than if you have if you're running a 20 minute you know query and you have the luxury to you know you know both the luxury and the you know the downside if you but both kind of of planning kind of longer and then we use different execution types what we called kind of dynamic we first called them you know executors and then as workloads we added more workloads we called them dynamic executors which basically would pick based on the query that you're running what path of code to execute and what planning to use and all of those we built uh, using the kind of the extension kind of like the modularity of the postgres code we can really leverage that and came a point where we said, hey, uh, you know, we could really rebase the Postgres code, the Citus code, to you know newer versions of Postgres relatively quickly. But what if we made this a pure extension of Postgres, where we could you know capture all of those functionality benefits, but also give our customers and users more transparency? Because you know we aren't building this thing from scratch. You know, as far as you're concerned. You don't know that you get a binary and it's kind of all bundled with you know Postgres and maybe it's a fork and maybe it's not. But we, in fact, were using you know like the vanilla community version of Postgres. So we basically took kind of like that uh, that effort and then turned Citus into an extension you know of Postgres. And those actually all came about at uh, the same time. So that I believe was. Uh, March of 2016, if I'm remembering the years right, whereby within, you know, like that would be because, you know, on the commercial side of things, we also, you know, raised uh, funds from uh, from VCs here in Silicon Valley. What we told them at the time is actually before we did our, uh, you know, Series A, we said we're going to open source this. Actually, that was always, uh, you know, like at that time, that was very clear to us. And we're going to not just open source this and say, hey, customers go use it to your liking and let us know what you you know like, we're going to do several changes at the same time. We said, actually, we're going to put all this logic into a Postgres extension. We're going to open source that. And then we're also going to provide this as a service, you know, pay-as-you-go model on in the cloud. And then we're going to, for our enterprise customers who have so far been using Citus, we're going to continue giving them that experience in that closed source fashion with additional bells and whistles, you know, and that's how we're going to grow our business. So that was basically, excuse me, the journey that we went through in terms of how we extensified Citus and how we open sourced it. Yeah, and we've talked to Marco, we've talked to Craig a couple times about these different engineering problems that you've worked through, the engineering opportunities of Citus. I'd like to get more of the market characteristics uh, from your perspective, since you're CEO of the company. So if I if I'm a developer, let's let's say I'm working on my hot new startup. I've got everything in Mongo. I think a lot of companies that get started, they just everything is in Mongo. They've got a transactional Mongo database. They're building a ride sharing company or something like that, and it's just transactional data in Mongo. And then their business starts to take off. And they start to realize, okay, we need faster data access for analytical processing. We want to return large analytical workloads, and we don't really want to query the Mongo database 
to do this. So we need to start thinking about our data infrastructure. We need to start thinking about our ETL jobs, or or maybe we need to you know rewrite our entire transactional layer to write to something else instead of Mongo. And I think this this ties to the rise of these databases that are quote unquote new SQL where if I'm looking to solve this problem, this problem of migrating from my purely transactional Mongo workloads to something that is more dynamic, more analyt- more capable of doing analytical processing, I might go to the Strata conference and walk around the expo hall, and I'm going to talk to all the vendors, and I'm going to ask the vendors, hey, how much are you going to charge me to do this? Are you going to help me with it? Why should I port my data to your thing? Is it yeah. open source? Is it closed source? Is it new SQL? Is it old SQL? Is it no SQL? Is it yes SQL? You know, and it's just overwhelming. It's overwhelming even for me as a podcaster. To, and my my job is basically to talk to these companies and try to get a sense of how they compare to one another. And I simply cannot understand, you know? Yeah, there's you're not so, alone. <laughs> there's so many of these things. And I just... So if I'm in this situation, I'm building my hot new flying car ride-sharing company that's taking off, literally, and all my data is in Mongo... How do I assess this gigantic vendor landscape? Yeah, and, and you are, of course, by no means alone, Jeff. And I mean, because I think sometimes ignorance is bliss. Like if you don't know <laughs> what's going on, then you know you could just kind of go with so what's I just, available. So I should just roll, roll a dice and pick a random <laughs> exactly. one. Pick, pick, pick what comes and just go with it. No, but you know, like on a more uh, you know serious note, yeah. So that that is a very common problem, uh, and of course, you know, for developers, for enterprises, larger companies have this problem at a different scale, right? So. What I you know, tend to look at is a couple of things. First off, you take the foundations of the kind of like the NoSQL databases. Take Mongo, take any which one. I think it's born out of two fundamental shortcomings of the relational database at the time. Right. One is that we talked about scale, that how it wouldn't, hey, like as you get bigger, kind of what do you do with this? And the other is, you know, structure, right? I have to enforce structure and I need more kind of flexibility, right? Especially as I collect these newer data types and I don't really exactly know you know, my data model and how it's going to evolve kind of ahead of time. Uh, now, I think from a, like, if you look at it where things are today, you know, Postgres has the JSON B data type, kind of uh, putting that as a, you know, very kind of important resident in its kind of portfolio of, of uh, data types and executions that kind of work with it. So that's one. And then two is, uh, you know, scale, of course, which we work, uh, you know, at Citus to, you know, address for a long time. So now hey, I can get scale, I can get kind of semi-structured data and structured data together. So when should I use it? When should I not use it? And, and I think that becomes a function of really part what your existing kind of experience and biases have been. What angle are you approaching the problem from? You know, have you, you know, been used to using Postgres or MySQL or Oracle or, you know, like before, in which case kind of you have... Uh, that relational view of the world, or, or you've been kind of uh, using the NoSQL model. That's one thing where your existing stack is. And then two, the type of application that you want to build or that you're building, what workloads is it going to tackle? And then three, how you see them kind of evolve. And, you know, on the second one, from a workloads perspective, you know, uh, I think what everybody wants to do uh, build an application that'll one day scale, right? Like if I didn't think that my application would scale, if I thought it was only going to be for 
just two users, I probably wouldn't be building it anyways, right? So like you're always thinking, hey, the application is going to scale a lot regardless of whether it will eventually or not. So you don't want to be locked into an architecture that's going to you know, not scale for you. So, you know, you're building, in, in other words, let's say you're building a building, right? And you're, you're an app developer, but instead of, you know, you're a, you know, construction, you're an architect, really, like a physical world architect. And, you know, you have this vision of a, you know, 50-story high rise with a lot of kind of bustling activity, but then you're laying the foundations for it. You know, for vast majority of cases, you know, you might be fine building, you know, like a two or three story building is going to kind of contain the work that you need. But if as an architect, I come with a blueprint that will cap you at three, you know, floors and, and it's, you know, with a foundation that, you know, beyond three floors won't go any up, then I'm going to get a lot of pushback, right? The, not just from like my boss who's going to say, hey, like you're not thinking about the future or from my kind of my peers and elsewhere. So this notion of, hey, something needs to be scalable, I think is a real, you know, new concern up front. And then I think, you know, so you want to have desire, you know, scalability, you know, the option to scale, if you will, baked into the system without overdoing it, right? Because if I want to build a, you know, kind of a two-story building, and if I then undertake a skyscraper project with kind of all these cranes and other things, then I'm incurring a lot of overhead, a lot of cost. And I think, you know, basically over-engineering kind of my system. So I think there are several good technologies that you can rely on. You know, I know Postgres the best because that's what I've basically spent kind of all these years. But then, you know, you could pick MySQL, you could pick, uh, you know, I think if you're operating on the NoSQL side, you could use MongoForce, you know, certain applications. I don't think you need eight different databases uh, to provide one simple kind of application. Like you want graph database to do this and an in-memory database to do that and the different, you know, early on. Like, I think that's a large company and or large service, you know, problem which you can think of in different ways. But you want basically an all-purpose database that can do things for you that you can iterate on, you know, fairly quickly. And then when the time comes, be able to not be in so much debt that you can't kind of get out of and, you know, do do different things with. And with all of those, you know, uh, again, in a, uh, so Postgres, of course, I, like I said, have that set of biases and set of also knowledge about that product more so than any other, you know, for me personally. But Postgres like offers a very good way to do that, right? Like I can start, it's reliable, it's got a huge ecosystem uh, of, you know, people who know about it, developers who, you know, can work with it, tooling, etc., different vendors who provide it in the cloud, on-prem, wherever you like. So it's a safe bet. And Postgres isn't the only database that is a safe bet, but it's one of the view that is both kind of open source, has a lot of developer credibility. So that's, I think, uh, for many cases, starting there is, is a good, you know, good starting place. And then as you think about your workload, then give kind of a couple of examples where you can stay entirely in that paradigm where it might make sense to, you know, like decompose things kind of into different things. But, you know, let's say, uh, and this is something we see a lot within kind of Citus users. If you're building a SaaS application, right? You're building the next Salesforce or you're building the, you know, whatever you like, you know, take your favorite pick of the day. Where the reason I say it's a SaaS business, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of SaaS businesses tend to be like B2B, right? Business to business. You could have a SaaS product like a, like a one password or something that is also consumer based, where a consumer pays on a pay, you know, monthly basis. There are many successful examples, but the vast majority is really kind of business to business. And in either of those cases, and especially B2B businesses, you, all of your customers uh, have uh, isolation, right? Like they have data that's only 
they should be able to see. And again, often in a B2C case as well, you only want one customer to see their passwords if you're one password. And then you've got then groups and teams that kind of aggregate on top of that. Uh, so that paradigm of each user being able to see their own data as a SaaS, you know, SaaS startup is very common. And it's actually very well modeled by the relational database. So because if you think about the next Salesforce or the next B2B app, you have customers that are going to be residing in that database, your customers. You have your salespeople who are the users of that system. You've got your products. You've got your leads, your opportunities, you know, like your pipeline. All of those things are actually things that reside in your data model and they have relationships with them. Like you can't have an opportunity uh, without an account. An account is basically the company that's associated with that opportunity. And you can't you know, have an opportunity without an owner, a sales rep, which is a user ID. And these are all, when you think about it, you know, from the app to your database, very relational things. You've got a user's table. You've got an opportunities table. There's a foreign key between users you know, and the opportunity in the user's ID column. Your database enforces those constraints because it, if it doesn't, then you will have to kind of add the application layer. And then you generate reports. When, when you do them, say, give me all opportunities that I, you know, are uh, for these accounts, then you're performing joins, you're performing left joins, etc. So it's a very relational and it almost, if you try to model it otherwise as kind of these large JSON objects, then you're writing many, many duplications of data across many different kind of tables or collections. And you're not enforcing relationships between them because that is, again, what relational is about, etc. So in those cases, especially, it just makes sense to look at it you know, as a relational database and then scale those multi-tenant workloads, whether you have one tenant or whether you have 100,000 tenants kind of in the future. Now, if actually before I go into the different use case, does that, uh, Jeff, make sense from uh, like how to think about workloads as an example of, hey, like I've, I've got this database, what do I want it to do? I think is the question you want to ask yourself, your app. Yeah. And depending on the workload, then you can actually, you know, like dive deeper. It does. Feel free to take me deeper or I can ask you something else. All right. All right. So I, I can, you know, dive like diving uh, deeper on that, so say like other workloads, right? So you've got the multi-tenant workload where you can have actually each tenant doing things and then you're sharing data between tenants through, you know, what we call reference tables where you're kind of putting the data on every machine and making sure that when you perform joins, they're doing kind of being, they're performing locally and you're enforcing constraints and all of that. Now there comes a time where actually you want to query across all of these tenants or query across these shards that you have created. And then you want to say, okay, give me all customers that have used this feature, you know, or what's my total sales across all of, you know, the customers kind of in that database. And, you know, your customers might not want to do that because they only see their own data, but your product people well might, your salespeople well might, or your compliance, your regulatory body might ask you to do that. And kind of in each of those cases, you need a framework that kind of farms queries across multiple databases that are operating and get your results without having you to kind of worry about instrumenting that kind of from scratch. And that's basically, you know, through Citus and Postgres and using all of those technologies together, give a kind of a simple paradigm to do that. Hey, look, if your application could work fine with, you know, one gig of data on Postgres. Now down the few, down the road, you got you know a hundred terabytes. You should be able to run it with a hundred Postgres machines, and 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 that your application shouldn't have to worry uh, about all of this complexity that's kind of under the hood. That's kind of how we think about the whole, like the holistic problem. Now, if your workload isn't relational at all, 
right? And if you've got basically one table uh, and all you're doing on that table is, you know, putting and getting stuff, right? And like it's like this large log of, you know, like events and you really don't have the notion of, you know, joins where you're putting things in and taking them out. Then I think using an OSQL, it's a, it's, it's a simple abstraction that you can use that service. Now, I think when you think about many of those, like if your application relies on a lot of, your application semantically, like not the way you built it, but semantically, logically relies on different entities having relationships with each other, then you might be well advised at least think about, okay, if I thought about this relationally, how would it look? You know, without creating 200 tables that interact with each other, you know, can I model this with four or five tables. I'll give you an example, you know, in, the, in an event stream case, you know, you could choose to say every device emits a signal as it kind of walks around my kind of security environment. And I got these massive large tables. Now, one way to model it is every action, every signal that a device emits becomes a, you know, a row. And it includes all the information about that device in that JSON object where it's located and what it does, et cetera. Uh, another way to model it is to have a devices table uh, that lists your you know, 10 million devices and uh, you know, an events table, which lists you know, every action. And when you wanna do something, when you say, okay, give me all devices that you know, the average, I don't know, age of the devices that have performed that action, then you can join them on the spot on device ID. And that way you're basically, you know, you're normalizing some, but you're not going necessarily all the way into a, you know, full-blown relational model. You're still using, you know, JSON objects to capture your events, but you're also leveraging some of the goodness that uh, the relational database offers. You have, you know, you ensure that every device has a proper device ID. You can run aggregations across all of your devices table without touching the other table and vice versa, et cetera. So there are, yeah, I think then the problem on one extreme is, Heavily relational, which you should probably think of nothing else but relational to model it. There is the other extreme, which is, you know, if your data model is simple enough that you could use, you know, like a small number of large tables to use NoSQL with. And there is a, you know, like a healthy amount in the middle where it actually helps you to think about some things as relationally and then put the burden of that integrity on your database as opposed to your application, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think you've given me a sense for why I always feel so overwhelmed at the expo hall, I think it's because I never have any particular application in mind. I'm always just strolling through the expo hall as kind of this like journalist person. But if I was able to say, hey, I've got my flying car rideshare company and I've got a, uh, a NoSQL Mongo database and here are the three applications, other applications I want to build. I want to build like a, a billing system. I want to build a system for predicting what uh, like different ride volumes over the course of the day. And I, I want to build a system that is going to measure weather patterns because... You know, because I need my flying cars to be, uh, to, you know, only fly in, in acclimate weather. Then I could actually go to these different booths and say, here are my data models. Here's what's going on in my application. Here's where I'm going in the future. Tell me how you would solve my problem. And then I would be able to judge more accurately how well is this company going to solve my problem? How well is that company going to solve my problem? 
or do I need some potpourri of different providers? How's that going to look? And then it would be easier for me to actually judge these things. Yeah, that, that's right, Jeff. And that's a good way to kind of think about the problem because you're not necessarily looking for, hey, like, give me, a, you know, just a toolbox. Uh, the question is, what are you going to build? <laughs> yeah. right? Or like, if you want to, if you want to just buy a toolbox without, and that's also, you know, you might just go and uh, want to get a toolbox. And in that case, you want something that's, you know, generic and, you know, multifunctional. And in those cases, it's like, a, I think going with some of the safer choices like you know Postgres, or if you're coming from the MySQL side of the house, you could pick MySQL and kind of build things on top. And then, as you see the requirements of your application, incorporate other things into it. I think is a better idea than just going at it. That's a pretty good sales pitch, especially in light of all these companies that are trying to build "quote unquote" data platforms where. That you've got all these large legacy enterprises that are trying to figure out their big data plan, and vendors are trying to figure out what's the best pitch to them. I think the Postgres pitch is is a pretty good one, just because it's so old and reliable, and and also it's kind of it unifies a lot of these use cases in one place. I think so, yeah, and also from you know like every integration down the line or when you build it is. Like an, as an extra thing to think about and, and an extra cost. Like it doesn't have to be that the database, uh, you know, it's not the license cost per se. It's the integration and the maintenance cost. And the more systems you have, then your cost shifts to keeping the data in sync, right? So like if I'm uh, proliferating and I'm using a you know, new service to provide each part of just one unified app, then each, you know, one of those things could be working fine, uh, but then I have a data synchronization problem. And that's a big problem, by the way. You know, you write into using one system into one place and you try to read that you have an ETL pipeline or you're moving data. Does it get synchronized? And when something breaks, you know, where has it broken? How do you trace back where, where that happened and going back to it? So I think in general, you want, you know, fewer pieces than like many pieces. And, uh, and then, you know, but... Like think about them deliberately, such that hey, like not everything necessarily falls into one giant. You know, like don't fall back to the one machine powering everything. You know, but you can actually there are ways to scale that 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 paradigm uh, the way we've talked about. So yeah, zooming out to these executive level decisions, independent database companies are feeling challenged in their competition with cloud providers. So you've seen this with Elastic and Redis Labs and Confluent, more recently CockroachDB, where they're changing their licensing model in order to charge money to cloud providers that use their open source software without some other form of remittance. If you were on the board of one of these companies, would you support the decision to change the open source license to improve the business model relative to cloud providers? I think, Jeff, that's a very uh, kind of overall being able to make you know uh, money from what you're working on is an existential question, right? Like you're so what you can do to make that happen, I think, is is always worth a discussion. Now, how you do it, I have maybe some differences of opinion, but the spirit of it, I'm not against. I think the, at the time, I'll give an example from Citus, which is, of course, you know, like we went through that journey, you know, prior to the Microsoft acquisition. But, you know, when we open source Citus, we had a long, long debate on what to 
you know, what license to do that with? And I spoke with a lot of people. I spoke with fr- people from the Apache Foundation, uh, like the, the, you know, the founders of that foundation. I spoke with folks at MongoDB, at other, you know, like database companies, trying to get a sense of, okay, how did AGPR work out for you? You know, like how the, you know, decisions get made in a kind of overall foundation, all of that. And then in the end, we converged on AGPL, which was controversial back at the time because it's not a popular license. And, you know, hey, like there's all sorts of concerns around, hey, does it, you know, the limit uptake because it's a kind of a copy left, but it's at the same time recognized as an OSS license by the, you know, it's kind of the OSS foundations, if you will. So it's, you know, fits that bill, but it has restrictions on not how you use it. You can use it any which way you like, but, you know, if you were to build on top of it, then it comes with conditions, which is basically, you know, you need to open source those. So it, it tells the users, hey, you can use my technology. You can build your things on it without restrictions, really, which is a definition of OSS. Uh, but then if you're making changes, all I'm asking you is to make sure that you open them, right? Uh, I think that's a legitimate ask, depending on, by the way, what layer you're building. Because if you're building a, let's say, an open source language framework, then your choices are very limited, right? You have to practically think about it as a very liberal uh, licenses where you're kind of be, you're building things, whether it's an MIT license or something along those lines. And then where if you're at kind of at the top of the stack, not exactly top, but further up the stack, I should say, you know, like on a database, then you have, I think, more levers to pull. Now, specific to your question about what some of the other companies doing, I think the worthwhile, uh, the effort to say, hey, he's a cloud company, you know, Mr. Mrs. X, you know, if you're using my technology, then I want some sort of either, hey, you could license it, in which case there's an agreement that is kind of commercials in place, or if you're not, you should at least, you know, put what you're building in open. I think that's a reasonable ask. And because these companies do need to, you know, if they are VC backed, need to return kind of, they have obligations to their shareholders. And then if they are not VC backed, but they're, you know, bootstrap, which is increasing the few, I, I don't know, you know, how many there are for, for many reasons, then my obligations to are to my customers. But for me to give a better experience, uh, I need to be able to fund this project. And the only way I can fund it is, you know, through dollars from the customer. Right, that's the best source of funding, not VC, not otherwise. But for me to be able to do that, I need to invest in R and D, if you will. I need to, you know, hire and retain the engineering talent that's bringing the software. For that, I need capital. So I think people understand that, and I think it's a reasonable like thing to do. I would do it with the way which kind of uh, we've done it through an open source license, as opposed to changing the license such that it becomes closed sourced or not not OSS. I think there are other ways to do it, but the spirit of it, I am supportive of. I know we're running out of time here. I want to get some longer-term perspective on the company since you've been acquired by Microsoft. What was the biggest mistake you made in the duration of Citus Data being an independent company? Ooh, so we made many mistakes, <laughs> no, no shortage of them since you know, 2011, I think about eight years. I think we did, you know, several right things as well, which took us to, you know, like where, where we are. I would say, I think we've thought of product and engineering and all of it as one for maybe a bit longer than, than we should have. Meaning everyone talks about product market fit. And that's a, uh, that's a very real thing. The question is, right, how do you measure it? Or how do you know you hit product market fit, etc. But uh, kind of as we went, we, there was a time when we talked about Citus you know, as uh, just 
uh, you know, scalable Postgres. And uh, that as an example, uh, you know, it's simple. I think you can think about it. it, has some shortcomings, but it communicates a message. Now, the practicality of it is to, you know, do everything uh, that Postgres does in a scalable uh, manner is a very large undertaking. And we would do, you know, several of those things and do them really well, but we wouldn't do kind of like that, kind of like the broader universe of those things. So what that resulted is in actually a message market fit but not a product message fit. So I, almost I would, with knowing what I know, I would decompose the product market fit question into actually two separate questions. I want to say, hey, like a message market fit. Hey, what you say, does it resonate with the customer and says, okay, I, I get what you're saying. And then number two is, you know, product message. You've given this, you know, a message to the marketplace. Does your product you know, uh, fit it. And I think that decomposition is probably more valid in technology companies as opposed where there's a, you know, the message you make versus the message you communicate versus what you build, uh, you know, has a, you know, like a large amount of engineering, uh, you know, to, to incorporate. I think had we done that uh, sooner, then I think we could have converged into the use cases that our customers are using us for a lot sooner and being able to be kind of more crisp with the messaging and the product already does does those things basically attract that type of customer as opposed to attract a more broad base of customers and kind of sift through it and then you know like iterate faster so i think that's it would have allowed us to move quicker i think from an engineering you know processes uh, perspective where we you know we were in uh, located in istanbul for a while and then you know with yc we came to to the Bay Area. Of course, prior to that, we were already in the Bay Area with Stanford and other things, but we went back again to Istanbul, back here again. I think that shuffle, if we streamline that, you know, faster to be closer to our customers sooner, I think that would have, again, accelerated our cycles. And then, you know, from a, like a customer facing perspectives, once we found those use cases, then we could iterate, we could double down on those quicker by targeted messaging and targeted sales. Right. So that's the, you know, one side of the product coin is engineering. The other side of the coin is, you know, sales and marketing. We could have invested in those in a more focused way. So overall, you know, I think those would be my, there's, there's more, but I think <laughs> th- those are the first few that come to my mind. Well, that's a really interesting answer because I had some requests from listeners for more episodes around those kinds of topics and just opportunities for people to, to think through stepping back and, and assessing the company on a more strategic, holistic basis? Because I think it's really hard to do sometimes if you're the CEO and there's nobody else who is thinking about the company in those terms and you're sitting there in your own head, you've got so much inertia in terms of the way that the organization is already structured. Like like you said, just, oh yeah, product and engineering and everything is just bucketed together. And you know, over time, you're, you know, like maybe your sales are going well, so you never really rethink some of these yeah. axioms that the company has been built under and it's, you know you just don't really have any oversight i mean i that's probably a place where investors can help you or maybe like your co-founders can you can occasionally have like a let's take a step back like let's do our three-month planning meeting and should we refactor the company or something like that yeah and 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 i think your uh, you know f- co-founders are, are a huge asset you know in that because you know you're thinking about you when you're going through uh, ups and downs you're generally doing it together and then you know that that the emotional 
ups and downs are really balanced when you can you know talk with a co-founder who's going through the same thing. I think that's one type of the support cycle, and the other you know can be your board uh, if you can rely, and it might not be you know there's your kind of immediate board members which you can you know ask for business and company wide thoughts. At the same time, that's also I think that's an entire different maybe podcast, an entire different topic how to deal with that. But you know at the same time you can be. You know, your board isn't necessarily always the same level of you know engagement and kind of detail as your you know customers and or other advisors might have. So you, you kind of you balance those perspectives as much as you can. But yeah, uh, I think taking that quick iteration uh, as much as you can uh, is is I think the real asset. Citus obviously went through uh, the acquisition by Microsoft. You know, an acquisition is this really. So it's a singular moment in a company, and you only get acquired. You know, many people only get their companies acquired once. So it's it's this process where you are likely to have no experience before, and there's a high likelihood you will never have an experience like it again. So it's very hard to play it correctly. So it's in some sense a, a totally zero sum, totally finite game. But it's not zero-sum because you want to have a good relationship post-acquisition. So it makes it quite a, quite a, a tough strategic process to optimize. I'm sure your investors were really helpful in this process. How did you formulate a strategy to go through the acquisition in an ideal manner? So here is uh, Jeff how we thought about it. And I don't know, you know, the ideal I think is a very very high bar, but we did as good a you know job as we could with a few important parameters. So like one of the we basically said, you know, there are three things that really matter to us, kind of in in a deal, if you will, uh, and in, in this case, kind of like an acquisition. Said, hey, you know, the well-being of our product. Uh, and and our vision for it. So we basically built something. We've been building it over like many years, and we've done a lot uh, at Cyrus. But there's a lot more that we want to do, and we do have this kind of converged. Hey, how, how we can deliver the modern relational database? That's basically what we want to do. So we need uh, to see that through. That's one side of it uh, on the product, you know, vision. The other is from our team's perspective. Hey, they've been with us for a long time. And, uh, you know, have been through the ups and downs uh, and more of the ups than downs, thankfully, which is where we are, where we are, but they put their heart and soul. We want them, you know, to be rewarded for it. And then the third is uh, our investors, uh, where's our shareholders, which have been again with us from kind of early on and have supported them, the company. So we want to be able to give a good return to our investors. So those are the three pillars you know, of how we're thinking about acquisition. And if we have an offer or offers that basically meet those criteria, then we're willing to, you know, entertain that and take that to the next level. And if not, that's fine. You know, we're going to continue building. We believe in this thing and we have enthusiastic customers. We'd like to have kind of a community of people who support us. So we'll, you know, continue doing that. So that was basically our calculus. And, you know, I think like beyond that, it's one of finding the right partners and or kind of acquirers uh, to move forward with. In, in our case, you know, Microsoft has, we've been really fortunate to, you know, meet the team there across a longer time period. And then both the leadership level and all the people we worked kind of like day to day with, we built kind of a lot of rapport, you know, from a, a, and a lot of, hey, at a personal level, like we like the people that we're working with, which in my opinion, matters a lot because if the first pillar isn't an object, if kind of delivering, you know, 
going on on the product side, then then maybe it matters less. And by the way, you know, there is nothing wrong with that. There are different acquisitions whereby, you know, you could make an exit and then you could, you know, do other things or, you know, that, or it could be just a technology sale or it could be just a team sale, etc. Every acquisition is unique in its own way. Uh, but for us, say we wanted to take that forward and we really cared about the team that we're going to with and working with and how they're thinking about uh, what's ahead. And in the case of Microsoft, those things aligned, you know, about how they're thinking about open source, how they're thinking about, you know, Postgres as a database, you know, that can kind of grow over time and how a relational kind of, you know, modern relational scale out structure could work. All of those things aligned and we said, let's make that happen. Well, that's a good enough answer. Thank you, Amur. That's it's really interesting. It's Absolutely. been great talking to you. It's been a, a privilege to talk to you and the Citus Data folks throughout the lifetime of the independent company. And I'm really excited to continue the conversation as you are part of Microsoft. So uh, congrats on the acquisition. Congrats on the long eight-year process. And thanks for coming on the show. Hey, uh, Jeff, thank you very much uh, for having me. And, uh, you know, one thing uh, I realized I should, you know, give a shout out uh, to is, you know, one of the things we did right before the acquisition was actually, uh, you know, donate 1% of our company to, to Postgres, to the foundation or to Postgres kind of organizations. And I've personally been very ha- happy to have done that. I think it goes a lot to the team. Our, you know, board has supported that decision. And maybe, you know, for other companies that are operating in the open source space, whether like it doesn't have to be obviously Postgres could be any project. Uh, like the thinking was, hey, like we w- wouldn't have been possible to build this company without all the, you know, the work and the, the effort of the entire community. That's one way of giving back. There's other ways of giving back, obviously, you know, like many of them. And I think they're all orthogonal to each other, whether it's contributing code or organizing events or, you know, reporting bugs or writing documentation. You know, there is no end to how you can contribute. And I think you can contribute with equity and it can be valuable. You know, if Red Hat were to give 1% to, you know, Linux, that would be a fairly sizable. Again, that's not to say they're not contributing. They're contributing in many, many ways. Uh, These are all orthogonal dimensions which we can add. And I would encourage, you know, people to think about that and see, you know, if you can do more of it. That's a wonderful norm to encourage because if you do encourage, like right now, I mean, there are plenty of people that contribute to open source for no payment, but... If you could encourage a norm of people giving money to open source when they have a windfall, that would encourage more people to start open source projects because they even just like saying, look, I think there's a thing that should exist in the world. I have no idea how it would make money, but I see it would, you know, help a bunch of people and they just crack the collective action problem by just, you know, building this thing themselves with no expectation of recompense. But if you encourage this norm of just giving people money or giving communities money, then it will encourage people to contribute back to open source. So they, so these things really do affect incentives. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it can add up over time. So, But awesome, Jeff. Really enjoyed uh, talking with you as well. It's a pleasure you know, to, to, to be here. And yeah, I look forward to staying in touch and you know talking again. Sounds good. Okay. Maybe the next time we'll talk about organizational refactoring. <laughs> I'm sure that wasn't easy. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm sure yeah, it wasn't simple. Okay. Cool. Thanks, Umar. Thank you. Wow.